Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange and Myanmar Musings want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, in a special episode made in collaboration with Myanmar Musings. We're brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. We're produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Crawford School for Public Policy at the ANU. I'm your familiar stranger today, Alex, and I'm joined by four PhD candidates at the ANU, all specialising in Myanmar studies. I have Luke. Hello. Mike. Hello. Din. Hey. And Anthea. Hey. Yes, and welcome to this collaborative episode with The Familiar Strange on Myanmar Musings, a podcast of the Myanmar Research Centre at the Australian National University, Canberra. So let's go around and talk about our research projects and why we're here to talk about anthropology in Myanmar. So I am in my final year of a PhD on beer, power, and masculinity in the biggest city in Myanmar, in Yangon. I am Mike Dunford. I'm a second-year PhD student in anthropology here, and my research is on race, ethnicity, and ecology in Myanmar's tea industry, uh, particularly in, in northern Shan State. My name is Dinath Adhikari. I'm a third-year PhD student at the Australian National University. I am researching tea shops in uh, downtown Yangon. I'm looking at the different ways people use these public spaces and what this vast range of social practices inform us about Yangon as a city. My name's Anthea. I'm a final year PhD candidate in anthropology and I'm doing an object-oriented ethnography of tomatoes in Myanmar, specifically in Inlay Lake, and I'm using an assemblage framework to unpack the cultural ecology of Inlay Lake. And since this podcast is going out on The Familiar Strange, I'll just give a quick two-minute overview about Myanmar, um, just to preempt, you know, something, the stuff that we might be talking about later. So Myanmar is a country in Southeast Asia. It's about the same size as Afghanistan in square kilometres, but it's really long from north to south. If you were to drive from the most southern border town to the most north, you're talking nearly 3,000 kilometres and 50 hours of continuous driving. So it would take about a week on Myanmar roads. It borders Thailand, Laos, China, India, and Bangladesh. And most of these borders are forested, mountainous, riverine, and pretty much all porous. And there are also some really key bustling border towns with China, India, and Thailand. There are only two cities of any significant size, Yangon and Mandalay. And Mike works a lot in Mandalay. And Dinath and I work a lot in Yangon. And a handful more with populations in the hundreds of thousands. Myanmar is comparatively lightly populated for its size in Southeast Asia, with only 55 million people, and a high proportion of these still live in rural areas. And Anthea and Mike both worked with with farmers uh, and brokers in rural areas. The country is really diverse culturally and linguistically, and ethnic identity plays a large role in politics and, unfortunately, conflict in the country. The majority population are known as the Bama, and they dominate politically and militarily. 
The Bamar Buddhist monarchy was previously an ascendant kingdom, having pulled off a number of land-based victories against their neighbours in the west and the east until they brushed up directly against the British Empire in Assam, who they'd been trading with since the mid-17th century. Myanmar became a British colony, then gained its independence in the post-World War II wave of decolonisation. When we talk about anthropology, we can sort of break up the last 120 years into a few distinct phases. The first was pre-World War II, when British imperial scholarship predominated. While some of that was anthropological in character, it wasn't often distinguished or labelled anthropology. And then from independence in forty-eight to the military coup in 1962, there were several ethnographic monographs from universities, funded by universities, doing anthropology that were researched in the country. From 1962 to the late 80s, due to domestic politics, very little anthropology was conducted by Myanmar nationals or by foreigners. And then from the late 80s until today, we've basically seen a slow increase in anthropological research on Myanmar, with a rapid speed up in the last 10 years that the four of us are a part of. So seeing as you are all part of this newest wave of opening up to anthropologists in Myanmar, what do you guys think that anthropology can bring to Myanmar studies? Why is it important to be doing this today? Well, I think one of the main reasons that anthropology is important to Myanmar is because there's um, there's a real lack of reliable quantitative data that's already out there for use by social scientists in, in, in Myanmar. So most of the work that needs to be done now either has to gather quantitative data or really invest itself in qualitative research. And anthropology, I mean, I'm biased, but to me it has the most kind of rich body of qualitative methodologies amongst the social sciences. So anthropologists can go into Myanmar right now or start looking at social formations in Myanmar right now and use the tools that we already have to draw conclusions about it in a way that, say, demography just can't because they don't, the, 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 the data is not out there in the same sense. Just to add on to Mike, Mike's point, I think one of the general viewpoints of scholarly information on Myanmar, and I think this sort of shapes how a lot of people view Myanmar, is through the lens of kind of political studies or security studies, and that kind of sort of simplifies the the narratives about the country. And I think what anthropology does in a really good way is problematize this and also um, expand these fields further and present different kinds of um, studies on other practices and things like that. I mean, for example, we kind of talk about opening up the transition as this big momentous occasion, and but really unpacking what that means or why that could also be a bit of a problematic statement is something where anthropology really speaks to. And that's something that in my own research is really applicable because what does that actually mean on the streets of Yangon? It's It makes sense on a, on a security studies paper. It makes sense on a political paper. But the on-the-ground implications of that is something these anthropological methodologies can really, really speak to. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that opening up in a second. But it's just occurred to me, I think I'm surrounded by people who all have something to do with, like, food and consumption. <laughs> Is that less than a coincidence? Is this a really common thing across Myanmar studies or just the way it's gone? 
No, it's not a really common thing across Myanmar studies. It's partly a function of the fact that we all have the same PhD supervisor. <laughs> and uh, also it's, it's part of our personal interests. We didn't all go into our programs necessarily knowing that we would focus on that. But, you know, food and drink is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's filled with sociocultural meaning. Um, we're drinking a beer right now. I, I think, I mean, food is ubiquitous everywhere and is really intensely culturally relevant everywhere. But in Myanmar, there are, you know, food, food can do things that it doesn't necessarily do in Australia. In I'm thinking specifically, you know, as Luke can tell us more about Beer is, you know, closely con connected to the construction of masculinity in Myanmar in certain ways. So is tea. Tomatoes are hugely important to regional identity in 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 southern Shan State, as 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 Anthea can tell you. But I I I, I don't know if these things are necessarily unique to Myanmar, but they're pretty unavoidable and and almost immediately evocative once once you start thinking about what's worth looking at um, and what to ask questions about. And I, I think, you know, it, it's also true that we have the same, we all have the same PhD supervisor and we both, or, uh, you know, all four of us had to read Sweetness and Power and uh, Capital Volume 1 really early on <laughs> uh, in, in the PhD process. And, the, you know, so the theoretically the commodity thing kind of stuck to all of us, I think, in a certain way. Yeah, and it's also connected to what I was discussing earlier regarding the history of anthropological research in Myanmar. So there's a real paucity of this kind of thing. Traditionally, anthropological research and other kinds of social science research by foreigners on Myanmar is either focused on Buddhism or on conflict. And that's partly because there's huge, huge stakes in Burmese society and the nation. You know, it's been in civil war for 80 years nearly 80 years, so it kind of makes sense to focus on these things. Um, just as there's been a lot of socio-political changes, economic changes in the last decade, so there's more opportunity to focus on some of the more quotidian and seemingly kind of banal aspects of life in Myanmar. Mm, for sure. And while we're talking about these changes, um, Din, you mentioned a minute ago that the, that concept of opening up can be a bit problematic, and I got nods from all around the table. Would one of you guys like to expand on why might that... That has always been how I've imagined the recent history of Myanmar. Why might that be problematic? Um, I guess the the notion of opening up, even just looking at the language of that, um, what it suggests is this idea that Myanmar was prior to this moment of opening up closed and um, secluded from the rest of the world, somehow, you know, isolated and all the connotations that come with that. And then the suggestion is, okay, in opening up, suddenly all of these things are new and um, it really constructs Myanmar as like a underdeveloped and kind of out of touch place from the rest of the world, I guess. And I think a lot of uh, the work that at least we're all doing now um, anthropological projects is to really challenge that notion that Myanmar has just been um, locked away in its own little bubble for all of its history up until this very recent moment. So um, I think as well, like that's going back to our conversation just now about the, the sort of focus on consumption and on objects. That's partly 
sort of the appeal in looking at, at, at those projects too is because once you really implode a thing um, and the ways that it's circulated and produced and consumed, um, you very quickly realise that uh, <laughs> these networks are far from isolated, secluded, locked-in Myanmar like, and they've had a long history of being more than that um, and being connected to global stories Cool. And each of your studies a really interesting product. Would you like to offer some examples of these linkages? Um, so my research is on tea shops. And one of the interesting things about tea shops and the way they project it is that it's a very essential daily activity for most of the residents in the city. Cool. And- Can I pause you there? I imagine a lot of listeners probably have not even a mental image of what these tea shops might look like. Would you be able to describe it a little? Yeah, of course. Um so imagine an open space on the street side, small wooden tables, small wooden stools, on top of them canisters of green tea and cups. There's these uh, workers, usually young young children, coming around and people ordering their cups of tea, which are these a concoction of condensed milk, evaporated milk, black tea. It's really, really rich, really creamy, really sweet and small quantities. And you just see all these people kind of sitting around these tables, drinking their cups of tea, and, you know, they can order snacks and other kinds of food. It serves different kinds of food throughout the day, uh, depending on the circumstances. And is the clientele wealthy, not so wealthy, mix thereof? So that's one of the kind of outcomes of my research is that one of the things about Yangon is, as a changing city, as there's different people are moving in as capital is accumulated and growing classes there are different ways of consuming so you could have um, tea shops that are on the road that could be for maybe the working class but there's also higher end tea shops that are in shopping malls that's and that's related to the growth of a new consumer class and then you also have high-end restaurants that still that serve tea that's for and they're priced for people who have a lot of money so it ranges across all these things, but there's something intrinsic about this consumption of tea that, yeah, it's part of this sort of accepted um, cultural commodity. And coming back to my earlier point, one of the things is that Yangon is a, a colonial city. It only it was probably planned out in around 1857 or 1858, so relatively recent in terms of time. And tea shops didn't really exist. This was part of the migration from from India. And even there, um, research has shown that these kinds of public spaces of drinking tea came from Iran. So there's this huge migration of consumptions of public spaces that's ended up in Myanmar and then has kind of adapted to the space that it is. So, yeah, so that's like one of the, one of the ways we can kind of look at like how these kinds of things have been essentialized, but they have these far bigger connections that that exist. One of the fascinating things that Din's research has done is track the institution of the tea shop itself, which, you know, has this really old history as a kind of public sphere type place that begins in what we would now call the Middle East, then travels via India to what is now Myanmar eventually. But the tea plant itself has been cultivated in Myanmar since prehistory. And 
you, something that I, I a, a hypothesis that I have. I don't know if I'm if I'm prepared to argue it formally, but I I, I think there's there's good evidence for a separate domestication event of tea in Myanmar. As Anthea said earlier, the idea that, that Myanmar was ever closed off from anything is is sort of absurd. You have this this flow of cultural institutions coming to Myanmar from um from from India via the Middle East as a result of British imperial migration. You have you know, and the and the existence of the institution, the tea shop, depends on the local cultivation of Camellia sinensis or the tea plant, which is totally, you know, an, an indigenous product. Um, I can go into that more later. But yeah, as as Anthea pointed out and Din nicely demonstrated, I mean, these commodities are, are really good examples of of why this before the opening and after the opening, or this before the transition and after the transition, this before-after dichotomous language just doesn't work in Myanmar. And I think that that is an insight that anthropology is generating right now about, about Myanmar. Cool. So then I do have to ask, I mean, I'm assuming you would all agree that that was still a significant moment in Myanmar's history. <clears throat> There's, it's not like one moment. You know, this is a really long process. This political change in Myanmar um, ever since independence has, you know, it's been long. There's antecedents, precedents. It just, um, yeah, but something really interesting in, um, you know, Myanmar's history since independence is the xenophobia slash openness, you know, this spectrum that people talk about a lot. And this has real practical um, outcomes, for example, on the, practice of anthropology, right? For a long period of time, it was very hard for international researchers to go to Myanmar. If we're talking about anthropology in Myanmar, there's definitely a closing and and, and an opening, I think. Um, there's sort of a hard cutoff. Well, I don't know. Even as I say that, I'm starting to think of counterexamples in my, in my, <laughs> in my head. Spoken like a true anthropologist. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, I mean, the classics, one of the, one of the classic pieces of political anthropology is, is, is about Myanmar, which is Leech's political systems of Highland Burma. Um, but that's, you know, first published in 1954, I think. And then there's Melford Spiro has some stuff in the 60s. But so if, if there is a closing, it would probably be the, the Nguyen coup of 1962. But, you know, I mean, another insight that anthropology has provided is that many people in Myanmar did not perceive the Nguyen coup as the great closing. And they, they saw it coming later in the in the in the in the 70s during the the the, the socialist period um yeah so as 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 luke said we can we can dig a really deep rabbit hole into the political history of Myanmar trying trying to periodize it but the the point i guess would be that in the 50s and in the 60s there's there's kind of a a big boom of good ethnographic research on on Myanmar um 
and then and then it goes but it, go, it goes silent really until the late 90s early 2000s and we're kind of on the the crest of that i think maybe about 10 years from now when all of our ethnographies come out there'll be you know four of about 30 <laughs> uh there you know there's a big scene there now which is which i which is a good thing while you're riding the crest of this wave there's still got to be some difficulties in trying to get access to your field sites. I think that's an anthropological universal. How have you guys gone? How have you gotten access to your various interlocutors, to whoever you need to speak to, etc.? It's a great question. And basically there's two tiers I think everyone would agree with, right? There's the first one, which is... Access to the country. Yep. So <laughs> going to Myanmar as a foreign researcher um, officially and being approved to do so. And then the second one is accessing whoever your researching. I think we've all got slightly different stories um, about that. So I was an affiliated uh, researcher with the University of Yangon. So the uh, University of Yangon's anthropology department endorsed me as a research uh, researcher. And basically for, yeah, so for, for the process, I had to basically write a letter, get a lot of endorsements from supervisors, um, present my research proposal and sent all that material, uh, translated it into Burmese and sent it over. And then there's a, I'm sure you guys would, <laughs> wouldn't, would understand. There's a, also a political process that happens within the university of getting that piece of paper to the rector's office who then approves it. And then it gets taken to the ministry of education. So it's a, it's a lengthy process. It's, I think mine took about five, five months in the end before I got I got approved and actually at one point I actually went to Myanmar on just a tourist visa and had to meet with the the faculty just to kind of see what was happening but mine went pretty smoothly after that it all got approved and then when I arrived in Myanmar I made sure to kind of be in touch with the anthropology department um so I think the main point there is that to get a research visa, which didn't used to exist in Myanmar and now does, you need to be endorsed by an institution. And so for Din, that involved a lot of involvement with that institution. For me, I was endorsed by an institution. I never saw them again. Well, I think one thing as well worth mentioning is um, kind of our experience in getting research visas is probably quite different to um, a lot of our peers who are also researching Myanmar at the same time due to our um, status as ANU students. So ANU has somewhat of a privileged relationship to these educational institutions in Myanmar. Um, ANU has an official memorandum of understanding with the University of Yangon and um, we're quite fortunate to have had some pretty good people-to-people -people links on either side of uh, the, those two universities. So we're pretty lucky when, when comparing our experiences to some of our peers, like I definitely think the fact that we've been based at ANU um, has given us access to that process that other people can't navigate on their own. Um, we all definitely needed introductions from uh, different people within the bo uh, both universities to facilitate that process. And it was still very lengthy and bureaucratic. So um, it's definitely not like a, I would say it's not something that we should take for granted because a lot of other people definitely have a hard time getting uh, this research access. And I think 
at the time when I was doing my fieldwork, Luke and I, to my knowledge, were the only people um, amongst the sort of peer group of foreign researchers that had research visas. A lot of other people at the time we were doing our fieldwork were there using um, different methods, business visas, <laughs> you know, other kind of arrangements that enabled them to be in the country long term. Wow. And does this border on that dreaded, you know, white privilege? Is there even an advantage strangely being an Australian university far away than, say, if you were from a, a neighbouring a university in a neighbouring country? Yeah. Well, uh, so that, that, that is an important question. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because this is, this is kind of juicy. Um, this conversation touches on what I call it a scandal, maybe more like a debate um, that unfolded on the Burma Studies academic listserv where um, a researcher from another Australian university uh, posted a query to the listserv like, has anyone, has anyone here had a formal relationship with a Myanmar university? Have you had a government research visa? How did you get it? My ethics board is asking me to, to do it. And a prominent researcher from an American university responded and said that he was appalled that Australian universities would force their researchers to affiliate with the Myanmar government, um, perpetrating, as it has, a, a genocide. Um, and that this, you know, asking researchers to get official research visas in Myanmar was akin to forcing researchers to become government collaborators. I, as, you know, I'm a PhD student. I, I, I followed the instructions that were given to me, basically. But also, I found being affiliated with an anthropology department in Myanmar to be really valuable. And I think part of that is because, you know, like you're saying, I mean, I'm here at a prestigious university in Australia, like, thanks definitely in part to white privilege and like who why would i write off collaborating with a burmese anthropology department just because the university is connected to the government that that does that doesn't make a lot of sense to me but to answer the question you just asked alex I, it seems like the sort of asean that's the as, association of southeast asian nations connections between universities are weirdly pretty good. Working out how white privilege intersects with bureaucratic ease in, in Myanmar is definitely something on the table that we need to be thinking about. Um, but I don't know if it's the primary consideration with regard to like ease of, of visa relationships and research permissions and that, and that sort of thing. Can I add in here just to kind of also extend on the juicy part of Mike's comments? I think there's, we kind of make these assumptions about bureaucracy as well. When I got my research visa, I essentially at that point was allowed to do whatever. And I could have gone anywhere. I could have done my research. I, you know, there wasn't really any checks on me. In a part, I felt bad 
that there wasn't any checks on me because I thought being part of the ANU and kind of a beneficiary of a uh, you know, privileged privilege relationship, I need to kind of do my part in maintaining the relationship. But it's almost a strategy by the University of Yangon's anthropology department to almost keep me at arm's length. I was I was involved, but they didn't really want to know too much about my research because that would maybe get them in trouble. So I think there's a there's a lot more agency than like these kind of big discourses of your collaborating with the state or not. Like that's not it's not quite as clear cut as what I think these big things of what a research visa means. Those connotations exist, but what that actually means on the ground is wholly different. That's the sort of real formal level of visas and what have you. How about getting access to your interlocutors, the people who wanted to speak, well, at least were willing to speak to you? I think that is, you know, such a key question for the whole discipline of anthropology. And I'm sure anyone who's done fieldwork will know that the assumptions you have going into your fieldwork about how you will meet people and who you will meet and the work that you will do um, tend to be a little uh, different from the reality you encounter when you get there. So um, my own experience, I guess, um, looking at tomatoes, researching in an agricultural setting, um, my assumption was that I would be working first and foremost with farmers and that that would be the, the sort of basis of my interlocutors. Um, and whilst I was able to meet farmers eventually and definitely incorporate them into my research, they were not the people that I was able to access easily on my own. Um, I think being a woman in the field and being particularly like a single unmarried woman um, for my field work, like there by myself, definitely made the task of um, getting in touch with interlocutors like quite difficult in some ways. Um, so I was able to sort of begin my process of meeting people in the field through where I ended up living, which was in a guest house. It was a small family run guest house. And I basically became really well connected with the family who ran it. And it was through them that I was able to meet um, other people and kind of get contacts within the spaces that I wanted to through introduction and connection through others, it was really hard to achieve on my own. So I think definitely, and I'm sure everyone else will relate, the, the process of kind of forming <laughs> relationships at the start that then connect you to other people and other spaces is generally how it works. Um, and that can take a different form to what you plan or imagine it will be. Yeah, I think uh, Anthea's point about serendipitous connections is really important. And I think that's sort of an unavoidable part of anthropological methodology is that you you have to sort of see what happens and be open. Be open yeah, and, and kind of put yourself in – Put yourself in a place where you'll be crisscrossed by the social formations or the processes that that you want to look at. I, so in my case, I, I used to teach anthropology at a postgraduate liberal arts institution in Yangon called the Parami Institute. Um, and when I 
when I told my students about the project I wanted to work on, I was lucky enough to have a student who who was a tea farmer and had also worked as a tea broker and was from a family of of tea farmers. Um, uh, he was almost immediately invested in in my project and and he helped you know direct what my questions became and what sort of lines my my research took um and i that was you know purely kind of a random event based on a, a like a lecture i gave there so once I was on the ground, I had connections to him. Um, also, by pure freak coincidence, uh, Mandalay University's anthropology department is weirdly invested in tea research, um, which grew out from a kind of gender and labor program that 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 they that they wanted to work on. The question now is, how am I going to finish this project from a computer in Canberra, uh, given that the measures related to stopping the spread of the coronavirus have have ended my my time in the field, as it were? And obviously, that's incredibly disappointing. But one thing I've been thinking about recently is there were a lot of places where I really wanted to work, but because of the conflict or because of seasonal access or just because of distance, I was kind of thinking like, oh, well, you know, Namsan, like they're not allowing foreigners in because of the conflict. So that's sort of stricken from my my project now. However, if I'm talking about doing all of my work digitally, why not do a bunch of interviews with people who live in Namsan? Like those sort of opportunities to talk to people who I wouldn't have face-to-face access to um, now seem open in a way that I didn't think of them as being, you know, open because of tools like Zoom or Skype or whatever when I was on the ground. That is such a great point, how being away and having 40 hours a week you can apply to digital labor actually is an opportunity for you to do more with your thesis and to collaborate more with Burmese people as well. So your name will be on the thesis, right? But now you have the opportunity to really do something truly collaborative. Yeah, that's true. And I I think... Well, I think working out how to um, ask the tea farming community, uh, uh, most of whom are are would identify as they would call themselves Daang, Burmese people would call them Palaung, mostly come from from one ethnic group. But kind of now, I'm thinking it would probably be more valuable to ask Daang people you know, what they want to know about the, t- the the tea industry that I can kind of synthesize and compile from here. Um, and maybe t- taking an activist approach is is more visible now in a way that, that it, it wasn't visible to me, you know, a year ago when I was when I was planning to to start research. Mm. It also intersects very well and interestingly with, you know, Myanmar's digital landscape, which is totally a space that is kind of under-researched but really, really thriving and interesting. And so the kind of intersection you get to explore that too through the methodologies that you're kind of forced to embrace as a result of um, the COVID-19 response taken by the university. I think that's also a a kind of positive contribution that 
you can explore. And Zoom is legitimized now. Mm. I mean, if you tried to do this before, they'd be like, who is this guy who doesn't even want to come here, <laughs> you know, doing all of this stuff from his university <laughs> overseas? Mm. What the? But now it's like, okay, it's normalized that stuff needs to get done via video chat. These are all great points. So I have a question to you, Mike. Like, How do you talk to people? Like, Do you join Facebook groups or are you just typing in particular words into um, yeah, Facebook? Because Facebook is the predominant um, digital kind of medium in which a lot of these conversations are happening. I mean, in my, exa- in my case, you know, having had the privilege of doing physical field work, if I need follow-up questions, I can just message interlocutors over Facebook and that's fine. But then... One of the new rich avenues that's come up is Facebook groups and for tea shops, you know, there's, you know, I have a a tea shop appreciation group that I'm a part of. And there's this one guy who just really loves tea shops so much that he hosts live videos of like tea making techniques and different tea shops and things like that, which is like a really fascinating kind of outcome of how the tea shop is as a cultural community. But yeah, like what, how is that access like? That's so cool. Yeah. I feel like you've totally betrayed one of your like researchers' best kept secrets. I want to get on that group. <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah the the Facebook groups thing is huge. for For many years, Facebook um, there was sort of no differentiation between the the internet as a kind of infrastructural entity and Facebook as a platform. Like if you ask someone, "What is the internet?" In Facebook. Myanmar, they would say, yes, yeah, Facebook. Yeah, the, yeah, that remains. That is the majority the opinion. So it's kind of this amazing, I mean, searching, you know, doing a, a, a search for Facebook in, in Burmese is incredible. You'll get, you know, full-length movies that have been shot and posted only to Facebook. It's the only place you can find them. Short stories, I mean, um, kind of encyclopedic sort of posts written by people because um, this 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 platform was so huge. Um, so yeah, I think then bringing up Facebook is really important to this this discussion about informants and kind of the ha- the granular how of our of our methodology. Um, there, yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. there's there's a Mogo tea cultivators group. Mogo is a, a major town for a bunch of different things, including tea in uh, northern Myanmar. But the the Mogo uh, tea cultivators group seems to be run by by mainly by Chinese hipsters who were tea cultivators in China and have become kind of like expat tea cultivator cool guys in 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 northern Myanmar but then there there are a bunch of working class farmers who talk to them and t- tell them you know like oh your terraces look like shit you need to transplant this way and like yeah it fa- facebook is a is a fascinating platform for for research in Myanmar if anything i think i'm i'm underusing it at this point um yeah so a lot of you guys have interacted with universities in Myanmar and officially had relationships, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to that, well, first of all, to what extent have you guys collaborated in your research and worked alongside alongside with, however, local researchers? Has that been much of a thing or not so much? I'll quickly go first. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was officially endorsed and hosted by an organisation in Myanmar to get my research visa. That was... Um, a very well-known and it's fallen from grace, but it used to be 
one of the most high-profile NGOs in the country, and I never saw them after I got my endorsement ever again. Um, but I did work with research assistants in Myanmar who I found through personal networks and through WhatsApp, and that was really important for one part of my research. Yeah. So like I said earlier, once I got my research visa, I had been given a, f- a free pass and... Um, to that extent, you know, I was lucky and privileged enough that to kind of get to know the rest of the students of the Department of Anthropology who are really, they do so many different things in the city. So in that sense, I got involved in a few activities and if that could be counted as collaboration, but it's not really official collaboration. It's more like we like, we have a a shared interest in anthropology so in the more official kind of sense of collaboration, one of the places I interviewed, which was about high-end tea shops, was a place called Rangoon Tea House. And the owner of that tea shop slash restaurant, we, it kind of operates in a very nebulous space. It's really important for him to kind of connect his shop to the sort of history of tea shops in the city. So because of that, um, he was really interested in kind of documenting um, tea shops in the city and sort of showing how his own shop was kind of um, sort of riffing off this sort of the the cultural symbologies of food and drink. So I worked with a few of their, um, their I guess, team and we kind of were thinking, like we were in the process of writing like a little book about history of tea shops in the city and a guide to tea shops in the city. So that's like something that's still in the works, but it's something that show, so shows how like different kind of outlets for this kind of collaboration. It's, I mean, obviously we have to see it as a bit of a, you know, there's a certain stake in the owner's kind of reason to connect his shop into this thing, but it also shows like this shared um, interest in these spaces and, sort of promoting them as well. Um, I think for all of us, whether formal or informal, the research that we've been able to do and are able to do um, is definitely contingent on relationships with uh, local people in Myanmar, whether we consider that to be, you know, with our interlocutors or with the kind of friendships or like fixer relationships that you form um they all result in a kind of collaboration that enables uh research um for me whilst I had an endorsement from the University of Yangon I was geographically very far away from the University of Yangon and so had pretty little formal interaction with them so I wasn't doing my work alongside researchers from the University of Yangon. But definitely um, in doing interviews, um, in setting up meetings, relied heavily on the assistance that I got from um, my friends in the field who helped create those um, introductions and who helped facilitate those meetings and even in some cases helped translate um, in instances where I was unable to do that independently so um, I think, yeah, we it's important to kind of acknowledge this inbuilt relationship <laughs> of collaboration that requires um, the input of people who are in the field where the field sites 
where we go to do our research. Um, and maybe, yeah, the question of how that's acknowledged as collaboration or not is is something else to unpack. Um, but yeah, couldn't have done it alone. <laughs> For sure. Oh. <clears throat> that's a really good point, very important. On the institutional side, thinking about anthropology in Myanmar, um, one point that hasn't really been mentioned here is that with these kind of um, narratives of closure and opening and all of this jargon, there have also been closures and openings of Myanmar universities. So for many, many years in Myanmar, universities have been shut down, departments have been completely starved of resources, and the best universities in the country have kind of become hyper-political fiefdoms with very little research output. So if you go to the thesis repository at Yangon University and you search for anthropology theses, there are very, very few. If you look for geography theses, there are very, very many. And those geography theses are doing much the same thing that the anthropology theses are doing. Why is that? Well, it's because that department had staff who were better placed and more able to get those theses done. But then these institutions have recently signed MOUs with foreign universities, as we've said, have had buildings built with foreign aid money and are slowly changing. Um, And then there are also new institutions in the country that are teaching anthropology. So that's all really exciting. And I'll, I'll throw to Mike to talk about that because he's been working in one of those. But before I do... There's one memory that I have when I first went to Yangon University and I was hanging out with some people, some students who were doing anthropology at Yangon University. I got really excited. I said, why did you choose to do anthropology? And they said, we didn't get very good marks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, interesting. That I I heard that occasionally when I asked students that, Mandalay University, why they chose to study anthropology, but there, there were there were quite a few students there at Mandalay University who who came in intentionally wanting to do anthropology, and they kind of had a like an honors program in their anthropology department for students who were particularly invested in it, um, and they were you know as undergraduates kind of doing independent ethnographic research on festivals and all sorts of all sorts of cool stuff. Um, I, I, so uh, I'll get back to Luke's question about new institutions um, in just a moment. But, uh, I, you know, another one of these very lucky sort of coincidences I happened to meet through a friend um, – Dr. Tira Twewin, who's the head of the anthropology department at Mandalay University. And she is super energetic and involved in trying to build um, an active anthropology department at, at Mandalay. And they, they, they have a strong focus on um, material culture, so um, traditional musical instruments, manufacture, and um, sculpture carving, and the the kind of um, sort of cultural processes that that preserve these traditional material culture forms. They're very interested in there. Um, Alex mentioned before we started recording uh, (laughs) that... um, 
In Latin American universities, you tend to not find anthropology departments outside of maybe the exception of Mexico. D- depends on the country. I wouldn't go so far as to say all Latin American countries, but certain Latin American countries, generally the ones that went extremely left. Right. Well, you know, as you were saying, they, they tend not to have anthropology departments because it's kind of seen as a, as a colonial science, right? Absolutely. Um, in in Myanmar, the universities uh, were very much colonial projects and retain a lot of those patterns now. Um, so, at least in at Mandalay University, anthropology has certainly stuck around. Um, I've uh, I, so I've also worked at the Parmi Institute, which is a new. Now there's also Parmi University, which is kind of a independent nonprofit university, uh, which is affiliated with with the Parmi Institute where I where I used to work. Um, but so there, they also teach anthropology um, and have tried to. Uh, at least in my courses and in the other folks who've taught anthropology there, we, we've tried to take a more anti-colonial kind of questioning what anthropology is about stance, which seems to be fairly productive um, in that colonial anthropology is still sort of alive and well in, in Myanmar in certain ways. Like some of you have been to the, the National Races Village, which was a, a field trip that we took every every term in, in my class, which is which is basically uh, an, an ethnic theme park run run by the Ministry of Information um, and kind of, you know, asking students to ask them to pick that place apart um even without any disciplinary anthropology they can usually identify what sort of of bullshit is being sold by the national races village and why you know why that colonial anthropology is so problematic and and you know that i guess um is hopefully where we'll see some some exciting like Myanmar anthropology by people who are from Myanmar coming out is in that kind of um, anti-colonial vein, that that vein that actively critiques the colonial anthropology that's like so, so deep there. Yeah, and these <clears throat> that's why these new institutions are so exciting because they don't have the baggage. There, it's there's no way to underestimate how much baggage is associated or is associated with Yangon University, Madeleine University, for mm. example. So when you said the National Races Village, I thought of the Museum of Anthropology at Yangon University, yep. which is much the Great. same thing, but it's the Museum of Anthropology in the Anthropology Department in the best university in the country. So institutions like the Parami Institute. Um, have a real massive opportunity and pivotal role to play in future education in Myanmar. I think you mentioned Luke some of these new institutions and other ones that are that are worth checking out are the Mo'u Foundation. They do really good work in the social sciences and in kind of education theory. And I would I would also look at the the Genka School, Genka School, Genka Institute. Um, I don't I don't remember what they're calling themselves now, but that's another. Um, social science focused sort of institute that's doing really good work. I would also check out the Yangon School of Political Science. So then the state of play of anthropology within Myanmar the country or just within the broader Myanmar scholarly field, 
what are some of the big debates? What are the Myanmar anthropologists really talking about at the moment? Let's go with maybe a top three. What would you guys say? Well, a big one, uh, because it's old, because one of the large preoccupations of scholars, foreign scholars in Myanmar was religion, is what in, what defines Buddhism in Myanmar. You know, Myanmar is a majority Buddhist country, but there are all kinds of other things going on. And one question, one debate between anthropologists and other religious studies scholars is which things belong to Buddhism and which things don't, which things existed before Buddhism, um, how did they get incorporated into Buddhism, and then, like, most starkly, are they part of Buddhism or not? So there's a thing called the Wazar cults in Myanmar, which are beliefs in supernatural beings. And so that, that's a huge cleavage. Some people say that Wazar is part of syncretic Buddhism, and other people say no. You know, worship of spirits and the belief in supernatural powers is completely separate to Buddhism. So that's one that's alive and well. Uh, another huge one is the topic of ethnicity, um, specifically when there's a huge attention on the ongoing conflicts in Rakhine State and the genocide of the Rohingya populations that live there. Um, that definitely creates a context for uh, asking anthropological questions of what constitutes ethnicity, what constitutes belonging, how are ethnic categories formed, how are people categorised. Um, this question of belonging is just so pervasive in so many different forms. So I think that that is also um, a space that has, like Luke said, religion being kind of an old topic. Ethnicity is similarly probably an old topic in history of anthropology in Myanmar, but it's also one that is enduring and contemporary. Got to ask, is there much interaction between that colonial concept of ethnicity and the current ethnic conflicts? Definitely this question of how ethnicity was categorised at the time of colonialism and what the endurance is of those systems of categorization and, you know, ideas that were established at at that time and how people are still kind of contesting ethnicity along those lines and trying to um, reclaim identities that were formed in the colonial context is definitely a huge question that, um, you know, lots of contemporary anthropology is dedicated to exploring. This isn't a debate in as much as there are two identifiable sides. Um, but how to make sense of the Rohingya genocide and, and kind of how to understand the Rakhine crisis and sort of, you know, um, like, why did it happen and who's culpable is, is, a, is a question that I think is just kind of on everyone's mind. And you, you can't avoid questions about ethnicity or about religion and the relationship between, like, Violence and Buddhism, for example, um, you can't avoid those those questions when you're when you're trying to understand Rakhine. Mm. I'm trying to think of like what would be the top three, and I think there's a body of literature that also came out would be Borderlands as one of the big places where anthropological studies was done. I mean, but these are kind of it, that's more of a area studies kind of 
space where these different kind of manifestations of ethnicity and religion and state relations and how they impact the everyday lives of people living in this space where maybe the power relations are a bit more in flux macro on a macro level a lot of anthropologists just kind of really love that kind of space to get into so i think that's i think you know that kind of still it adds to rakhine state especially like western rakhine state and then you know Karen state and Kachin state where the big civil war conflicts are. Yeah, anthropology is very well placed to problematize categories of classification. Like right? borders, yeah. Like, yeah, like borders. And returning to our discussion earlier about why anthropology is particularly interesting or important for Myanmar, you know, we are four Myanmar fans. Like, we all think Myanmar is a magical place for all kinds of different reasons. And if you care about a place then you care about its problems. And Myanmar has a huge number of problems. And a lot of them are, you know, manifest in, in violence and in conflict, which is just tragic. And some of those conflicts, problems, are predicated on misunderstanding and difference. And so if anthropology of and in Myanmar grows, I think it can only help the country because you know, understandings of social and cultural difference is what Myanmar needs to have if it's going to prosper, basically, because it's an incredibly diverse place. It's not going to homogenize anytime soon. Uh, sorry, this leads into a question that I was going to ask due to my own interest, because I feel in some area studies, there are different attitudes towards this idea of anthropology as a comparative project or not in that some play, some areas it seems to me they're like yeah look we'll research this and this will have bigger things to say about nationalism as a whole and some other area studies like no I'm just going to talk about like uh, let's say indigeneity in the Andes and that is all this is referring to how do you guys see your scholarship and anthropology in Myanmar more broadly I mean I think work on race and ethnicity in Myanmar has has for some reason avoided looking outside of Southeast Asia for comparative reference maybe that's a hot take um, that that I'll that I'll catch some flack for later come at me um, <laughs> but you know we are now in the in the middle of a massive um, black-led anti-racist uprising in the United States. And I think people, any, anyone who looks at race or ethnicity anywhere in the world should be paying attention to, to, to that. Um, also, I think there's a lot, the, um, just because of the, the continuity and the, the long duration of work that's been able to be done there, um, work on ethnicity in many places in Africa has, has a lot to, um, has, has a lot to teach us about how to think about ethnicity in, in Myanmar and vice versa. I'm thinking of like Achille Mbembe or like George Paul Mew or, I, you know, maybe even like James Ferguson have, have all written extensively about race and ethnicity or like Fanon, like where is, where is Fanon in, in, in Myanmar studies? So I, I think in, at least in terms of the race and ethnicity question, there's a ton of cross-pollination that's like waiting to be done. <laughs> and I, it seems surprising to me that it, that it hasn't, hasn't, 
happened yet. Or or perhaps I'm totally ignorant and have like not read the right things within Myanmar studies, which is also 100% a possibility. And also turning it around. I don't know. Relevance of Myanmar studies to the broader context is mm. the other way to ask this. What do you? How do you see anthropology in Myanmar contributing to wider discourses? Race and ethnicity? Are there other ones? What your question kind of asks us sort of riffs on what we were talking about earlier, like how we kind of view our research and how we kind of view anthropology. And maybe the mindset is that we have to look at this in not like understandings aren't these like necessarily bounded by our geography intrinsically because of how we say like you know the example is uh, a tea shop is a multitude of different migration patterns and put into like convection oven and like forced with like urbanization all these different things so there's already like um comparative outcomes out of it and you know it sort of challenge it kind of challenges these sort of notions that we already have, like, you know, the, the nation, the, the idea of ethnicity and things like that. So, like, maybe that focus already contributes to this, um, how we're writing, shows how these categories that we've sort of built up are actually problems in themselves. I think um, an interesting way to look at this as well would be through the prism. We're talking about scholarly knowledge through the prism of publications, yeah. So we've got Anthea here who published in a Burma-focused journal an anthropology article. We've got Mike here who published in a Southeast Asia-focused journal a Myanmar anthropology article. So it'll be interesting to hear from both of them how they dealt with this problem, you know, or this um, how they dealt with this process of making their research relevant in those spheres. So in the case of my uh, journal article... I published in a special issue of the Journal of Burma Studies, which is already, as an area studies journal, an interdisciplinary journal that invites contributions from very a very wide range of disciplines. Um, and, yeah, this special issue was specifically looking at the topic of the environment in Myanmar, um, which my research really speaks to. Uh, the context that I'm working in is one that um, really has a lot of contention um, with this question of the environment, its health, its sustainability, um, and there's a lot to unpack there that I feel really anthropology offers some great tools for trying to answer that question. So um, part of what drew me to trying to publish for that issue was just basically the questions they were asking and how I felt anthropology could really um, offer a compelling response to these questions of resources and environmental contestation. So, yeah, I think um, I tried to, in the article that I published, which was basically a sort of overview of what my thesis is doing and using this sort of object-oriented approach to um, answer these kinds of questions, I tried to foreground that in my article and um, make a case for why these anthropological methods of being ethnographic with things um you know was a useful way of trying to enter into these conversations so i think that's how i tried to use anthropology in that space i i wouldn't say it was a particularly like heavy piece anthropologically 
what I did in that article was sort of an example of an assemblage framework looking at an object you know from so many different angles and looking at it in relationship with different objects um, in ways that are really entangled and that kind of complicate the life of a thing and show how things are multiple in their existence through their relationships Um, so to maybe use the example of what I did in this article to help make that clear um, I presented the object of the tomato but then I sort of imploded it to its different identities at different points in time when it's involved in different kinds of relationships so I explored its life as a commodity and then I looked at okay what about when it exists as a seed before it kind of becomes a commodity or is a seed a commodity too like and kind of question it that way Um, and then I also looked at its sort of symbolic role in this specific cultural ecology of Inlay Lake where it's um, produced by an ethnic group and so it necessarily takes on some kind of ethnic identity as well and it's sort of symbolic identity. So in doing that, try to complicate the understanding of this tomato as just a tomato in however people might understand that to show that actually objects exist within assemblages of um, entangled, complicated relationships that can change how meaning is understood in relation to that object. Awesome. And Mike, want to tell us a little bit about your research? I mean, your publication? The the paper that I wrote is was also for a for a special issue um, of the Journal of Southeast Asia Studies, which was a special issue on the politics of indigeneity. the The question was um, they they it, it, to some extent it was framed in along nation state lines. So there's sort of I think most, if not all, of the states that you would think of as being part of Southeast Asia were included in the issue. So I, I had the the Myanmar one, and, and the, the question was how um, groups within Myanmar have mobilized this idea of indigeneity or indigene- indigenousness or um, identifying as indigenous persons in order to kind of jump scale beyond the national, so um, how they would uh, form associations across nation-state borders um, or how they would um, go to international forums like the UN to lobby for some type of political recognition. Um, and it, it, it's a, it's kind of a complicated story in Myanmar as, as else, as it is everywhere. But, um, to answer the question about, you know, how I situated this, there's sort of no way to think about the question of indigeneity in Myanmar without, without kind of, um, erasing nation state borders in your head and thinking about what, the space that we now call Myanmar uh, looks like if you sort of imagine social formations as existing across borders. There's sort of no other way to to imagine how indigeneity would work unless you sort of do away with the with the borders. So I guess there's there's a tension between you know uh, quote unquote indigenous peoples in in Myanmar 
and the idea of indigeneity, which is about kind of, you know, radical attachment to land. Um, and th this doesn't really work for a lot of the population of, of uh, Myanmar who see themselves as, as belonging to structures that, that exist across borders. So one last question for you guys, from me. Uh, if somebody wanted to get up to speed with Myanmar and maybe particularly anthropology in Myanmar in a hurry, where would you send them? I think the Journal of Burma Studies um, would be a good place to start looking for academic um, source material that is released. There are issues released twice a year, so there's quite a lot coming out. Any chance it's open source? It's not open source as far as I'm aware. But then some great easy access materials that are not too um, heavily academic um, and really um, tied into contemporary debates and conversations. One would be Tea Circle, which is um, a blog that actually Mike and Din have recently published an article on about Apyosiyas and Yangon tea, tea mixes. Um, so a little plug for their work there, but that would be a great starting point. New Mandala has a Myanmar section. Oh, and there is Luke's Myanmar Musings podcast. Of course, which, which is I of hope, course a great uh, resource. For which I hope all TFS listeners are now regular are subscribed to. <laughs> like and subscribe. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 great. Uh, there's there's also um, an up and coming journal, the Independent Journal of Burmese Scholarship. Mm. Um, keep your keep your eye out for it. Um, recently under new leadership, Dr. Pio Winlat. And then to um, round off the episode with a Myanmar musings tradition, we've all brought a recommendation here today, something to do with Myanmar that we'd like our listeners to go out and check out. So why don't we go around the table? So one of my uh, favorite things to recommend, and it's for people who are maybe interested in learning Burmese, so it might not be for everyone, is The Tea Shop Diaries, which is a great radio drama that's been going for, I think, seven years. And it's basically kind of encapsulates what happens in a tea shop. It's just a, it's just a drama. Um, about a family that runs a tea shop and they just go through navigating all these different issues and it's you know it's great for learning Burmese it's great for um, learning about what's happening in Myanmar it's it's it hits all these notes and it's done in such a great way that um, yeah I think it's like one of the best things to listen to you should um, type in the teacup diaries or teacup stories on Facebook and the sign is like a little um, picture of a steaming cup of tea. Um, but yeah, so this page is very active and they put up their episodes on Facebook and they put up different videos of interviews with different tea shop people and all these different, um, yeah, like all the different uh, news pieces. Um, at the moment, it's the election. So uh, there's a lot of pieces about that. So it's a really, it's a really great uh, resource. This has nothing to do with anthropology as such, but it has a lot to do with Myanmar. Um, I'm going to recommend that anyone listening to this um, 
you look for the poetry of 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 two guys that's Aunt Jane and uh Mounde. Um so Aunt Jane would be spelled A U N G space C H E I M T doesn't doesn't get spelled the way the way the way that it that it sounds necessarily. Um and then Mounde his he would spell his name M A U N G uh, space D A Y Mounde. Um so search search for their poetry on Google. A lot of it has been translated into English and it's it's really excellent. Um I have a recommendation that is uh perhaps a bit limited to local listeners here in Canberra. And that would be to take a journey out to Gungahlin and have yourself a nice Burmese meal at Myanmar Corner. Hey. Um, Speaking of... That's the best recommendation. Speaking of consumption and food culture that we started off this conversation with, um, that is a place here in Canberra where you can sample some of that. So um, that's for those who are based locally. Unfortunately, other listeners will have to wait until they journey to the great uh, national capital of Canberra. But yeah, great great food and a uh, really nice family that owns it and runs it. Yeah. Shout out to Josue Go and Anyan Du. And I, as I'm a guest on this particular episode, I'm going to take the liberty of doing a recommendation of my own. And regular listeners of Myama Musings will know that I've been on a little bit of a Northeast India Naga kind of bent recently. And I've gotten really into a band called the Imphal Talkies and the Howlers. And their first album is a straight up protest album um, out of Manipur. And it's got really, really great songs, really cool songwriting lyrics like, the nights we know are dark, the days we survive are bloody. How can you ask me not to drink? And they've got an army camp inside the university campus. No one says anything about it. Professors, they're busy making friends with the army for free alcohol. They're all going to die alcoholics, just like me, just like me, but I buy my own drinks every night. They're a really cool band I really recommend. Just go to Spotify, go to Google, Imphal Talkies and The Howlers. That's Imphal like the city in Manipur State. Amazing. Well, that's all we've got time for, but thank you so much, guys. Um, I'd like to thank Anthea. Thanks, Alex. Thank Din. Thank you. Thank Mike. Thank you very much. And thank Luke from Myanmar Musings. He's a team by day. I've been your host, Alex. This has been a special episode in collaboration with Myanmar Musings. Uh, today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange and Luke from Myanmar Musings. Our executive producers are the wonderful Diana Caddo and Matthew Fung. Um, subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. Where can they find you, Luke? MyanmarMusings.com. Uh, you can search Facebook for Myanmar Musings, Spotify, Google Play, all those places. Now, you can find show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep musing and talking strange. <laughs>